So this is another one from Ted. It must have been a major change for the band to go from an indie label like Boner Records to Warner Brothers. How did that come about? I think I've explained part of that with the Jane's Addiction's manager's girlfriend putting on bomb and fucking him. But her name is Kelly, by the way. I'm not going to say her last name. I don't know if she wants to be... I don't know. She probably said... Anyway, they're divorced now. That's how we got interest in major labels. And then we went down to LA and played six gigs. They were all showcases. Like, I think one of them was a real gig, but it was other ones... I think the manager rented bars for some of them. And then some of them we played with other bands. But we played six gigs in six days and stayed at our manager's house. Every major label came and saw us. Warner Brothers was the one that said yes. Atlantic was interested in us, but we told the guy from Atlantic... He took us to Atlantic and gave us the tour of the offices. And I said, we said, Tony and I said, if you can get us vinyl of every album by Led Zeppelin right now, we'll sign with you. And <laughs> he, he walked away and he came back and he said, the guy that can do that isn't here right now. And we said, you don't have enough juice to sign us. We need someone who, we need someone who has the keys to the Led Zeppelin albums, which is, we made a lot of bad mistakes like that. And it was a lot of, it was egged on by Tony, but I went along with some of it because I really kind of liked it. It gave me a little power trip. Another one was the manager and producer of Blue Oyster Cult, Sandy Perlman, who basically made Blue Oyster Cult were playing in basements and bars with no no following when he met them. And he, but he managed and I think he also produced Blue Oyster Cult and like made them big. So well before we got signed to Warner Brothers, he was interested in us. He'd heard about us. We were playing this little club in San Francisco called the Chatterbox. It's tiny. It's like, it holds about a hundred people, maybe. And sometimes they probably put 150 in there, violates fire code. It does, it's not there anymore. It was named after the New York doll song, Chatterbox. It was like, you know, it was a grubby, dirty bike messenger bar where the sound man sold speed to the bands and he was also the bartender. And, you know, (laughs) it's where Robert Plant went with some underage girls when he was in San Francisco visiting and like they wouldn't let him in. They didn't have IDs. It's that kind of place. We showed up there to do sound check and the lady who ran the place was really excited. She said, Sandy Perlman called and he wants to be on the list tonight. He said he's heard good things about you. And Tony said, he can pay. Which is just, you don't do, you don't do that, man. You don't fucking, you know, that probably blew us our chance with that guy. He probably, oh, I don't even know if he's there. He probably showed up. And they said, nope, you got to pay. That's the kind of shit that we did and mostly Tony did that is why people never heard of Bomb. And you guys were in your early 20s. Yeah, 21. I was 21. Yeah, it's like 21. I was 21. Tony's the same age. I think Jay might be a year older. I think Doug might be a year younger than me and Tony, but I'm not dismissing Doug's input in the band in this interview, but this interview is largely about why I'm putting out a remastering of Hits of Acid, and Doug wasn't even a tinkling in our eye, twinkling in our eye by then, so... Doug's a great musician. Doug's the best musician in the band. I don't know. It's a a close call with Jay, I would say. But, you know, you asked, somebody asked something about Tony's drums and like how I'd rate it with other drummers. It's really hard because he played his own style and he's really not, he's good at playing in bomb. The only other thing I've heard him was he played in a punk band called Fifth Column. It's on that double punk rock compilation album from Flips, I think from Flipside called not so quiet on the Western Front. And he's good on that. I heard a demo tape of a band he did after Bomb where he was trying, I think he was dating the singer girl and was trying to like 
manufacture a hit band or something or just he was running the band from behind the drums and i think he was writing the lyrics he was playing very straightforward drums he wasn't playing like bomb and he really wasn't very good at it all those other drummers that are mentioned in that question i mean who else is mentioned there dave Grohl. somebody uh, else is mentioned you know dale like dale and, <laughs> dale. and dave Grohl for this you know just dave hitter, dave you know. and dale Grohl. dave dale and dave Grohl. What's Dale's last name? I forget. Dale Melvin. Crover. Crover, yeah. Those guys play their own incredible style really well, but those guys can also play straight rock drums really well. Yeah. Dave Grohl, the drumming he played on the first Foo Fighters record is like, it sounds like a good drummer. It doesn't sound like, holy fuck, these drums are amazing. It sounds like a drummer serving the song in a band. And Tony served the song within the confines of Bomb, but... I've never had him blow my socks off with anything else. And all, but all I've ever heard was that punk band that he was really good in, but he wasn't a standout punk rock drummer. Oh, I have a funny story about Tony before he got, I think at one point before I met him, he decided to be really forceful and pushy and outgoing because he got an audition for Public Image Limited before no he kidding. played with us. Yeah. And. Um, he's there's like 30 other band, 30 other drummers, you know, they each got like 10, 20 minutes to set up and tear down and, you know, as long to play as John Lydon wanted to let them play. And Tony set up his drums and John Lydon walked in, this is according to Tony and looked at his drums and said, you know, your drums aren't very good. I'm not going to play with you. Oh. Tony just was crestfallen and packed up his drums and left the Tony. I know would have just shut up and played his drums. Like yeah. he wouldn't have been crestfallen walking out. He would have fucking played. And the guy would have said, okay, I'll buy you drums. You're that good. Yeah. He never told me that. Story. So he's a really good drummer in bomb. But the only thing I've heard since then was that band that he was in with that girl, which was well recorded, professionally recorded, but nothing about it made me say, man, I want to play this record. Like I didn't even show any of my friends. Doug did some solo mm. stuff that was so good. I played it for everybody. What was the it called? Guilty Party. Yeah, yeah I think it's Guilty Party guilty sounds party. right, which is a really good name. I do like one uh, one of the songs I really like. It's really catchy. They're kind of um, Bauhausy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guilty Party um, is a perfect name for his band because of all the Catholic, I don't even know if it's Catholic guilt, Catholic insanity in him. It's yeah, a, it's a yeah, good name. I'm surprised that, no one's that, ever used that, that name. Works. It's a good name. But And then the only thing I've ever heard other than that was on Jay Crawford from bomb his jay has a a soundcloud that's like mostly jams he does with people and there's a jam with him and tony and it's okay it's a jam but like the tony i knew would have played his best at a jam oh we're recording i'm gonna play the best i can and the drums were not even up to the par of guilty party they were they sounded like me playing drums and i can't fucking i mean i i could sit down and play a beat on drums but after about 10 seconds it drifts out of time that was another thing was tony <laughs> tony sped up and slowed down and i didn't know it until after that band i didn't have the ear for it i've got a really good ear for music now i have a little hearing damage oh you asked me how loud tony played i have he permanent hearing damage because of that band and largely because of tony cymbals tony broke cymbals all the time he also did like we were on tour and he used the headlining band cymbals we were leaving as soon as we were done to go get to another city in time and like borrowed some band cymbals cracked one of them and then just put it back on the set and split town like that's not cool <laughs> that's not cool at all man <laughs> 
<laughs> I think he told me that he's not sure, but that Dale Krover might be mad at him because he thinks that everybody's he mad at him. Like broke. You know, like broke the head on one of his toms or something, and and something to that. Where effect, where would he be using Dale's drums? Was it sharing a was guilty party sharing a rehearsal space with the Melvins? Probably assumed it was. I don't know. Back when you know Bomb was gigging with, huh. with the Melvins, I only remember one or two times we played with them, and I remember them afterwards liking us. So I don't think that was it. Anyway, what's the next question? Hey, hypothetically, how would you have felt about playing really, really large venues? Like, you know, I would have loved it. I wouldn't have been a pussy at all. I would have fucking loved it. But I think I'd be dead in a way. And I told Tony this in a way, Tony getting us kicked off of Warner Brothers probably saved my life, which I'm not really going to thank him for because it might not be true. And he was still a dick and he still did a dick move on Warner Brothers and got us kicked off. But it's possible that all if all my rock and roll dreams had come true, I would have died from drugs because I pretty much got off heroin when I could no longer afford heroin, like a lot of people do. And now I've got enough money that I could do heroin for a while, but I don't do heroin. But back then, I think I wouldn't have stopped until it killed me. Yeah. You know, yeah. paralyzed me or something, paralyzed my arm. I don't know. I know a lot of people that didn't die from drugs, hard drugs, but were fucked up from them, you know, like... Didn't somebody in Alice in Chains all, almost lose his arm? I don't know them, but I think I heard that, you know. Well, I mean, of course, Lane Staley's no dead. longer with us. I mean, I think it, it more or less ruined his body. And, yeah. Lane Staley then, weighed like 80 pounds when he died. There's a picture of him. Yeah. He went to a club a couple weeks before he died. He went to a club to see a friend's band, and I don't recognize it as him. It looks like someone's great-grandma. Yeah, which is sad. Yeah. They, were, they were one of my first favorite bands when I was, you know, 12, 13. Yeah, I, I went back to college when I was 30. I got sober and I went a year to San Francisco City College and basically learned to be a secretary and then quit being a bike messenger and worked as a temp agency assigned executive assistant, worked in the financial district wearing a suit and tie for a few years. Oh, uh, no kidding. Yeah, and when I was going to college there, I was listening took a bus to go to school from where I lived downtown at 639 Bush on the fifth floor on the back right apartment if anyone's doing the bomb stumbling tour. <laughs> I had a Walkman and I was listening to Dirt by Alice in Chains every day and I was listening to whole live through this every day. That's how I am with music. Like when I get music I like, I don't listen to anything else. When I was in college, I went to college for two years earlier when I was at college age in upstate New York, in Jamestown, New York, Jamestown Community College. I got straight A's. I got really good grades. But my last semester, I got four F's and an A. And the A was an independent study project in radio broadcasting class where I got to go in a four-track studio and make a record on my own and, oh, cool. it, and then write a paper about it. I failed the other classes because I didn't go to class. I went to the school library every day, put on headphones and listened to Aqualung by Jethro Tull and watched... Monty Python in Search of the Holy Grail. I watched that movie and listened to that album every day instead of going to class. Like, that's how my brain works. It's weird, but yeah. I'm pretty similar. I will listen to the same thing over and over and over and over. And I can, lots of stuff. I will never, ever, ever get tired of it. Yep. Um, What's next? We've talked about when Bomb first came together, but when and how did it officially end? Uh, Tony quit the band in extremely anticlimactic way that he thought like in his mind would be this big rock and roll moment. We had a gig 
in San Jose at the same place we'd played years earlier with Primus for 1,400 people. And at this show, there were about 50 people. It was weird because we could pack them in in San Francisco, but in the Bay Area outside of San Francisco, we didn't pack them in. It was really weird. We'd play Oakland and play to 50 people. You know, we'd play San hmm. Jose and play to 50 people. So we were going down to play and Tony told me, you know, we'll help move the equipment, but I want you to drive down with me in my car. He had some muscle car for, you know, old 70s, 60s, cool car. I later had a Plymouth Barracuda, which is even cooler. But So he had this oh, yeah, cool car cool. and we drove down in it and he told me on the way down that he was quitting the band. And I kind of like in my head just went, ah, eh, finally, you know, I was, I was ready for it. He said, are you upset? And I said, no. And he said, so what I want to do is I want to play this gig and not tell the other guys, not tell Jay and Doug. And we're going to play this song for the last song. As soon as this song's over, when the note's ringing out, you know, your guitar and bass and my cymbals are ringing out, I'm going to have my car parked right outside the stage door. I'm going to walk off stage, quit the band, not say anything, and walk to my car and drive away. And he did that, and it was like nobody there knew anything weird. Like, they didn't know he'd quit. Oh, the drummer just went out that door to the dressing room. <laughs> so really, and it was just you You knew and he me, knew, I was but no, the, nobody yeah, else right. realized like, it. Like, the only big rock and roll moment was in his head. Even if it had been packed, it wouldn't have, I don't know what he was expecting. Like, he should have said, I quit over the mic, drum mics and walked out, but he didn't. So that's how he quit, but we didn't break up yet. We got another drummer, which we were really never the same. We got this really good drummer named Bruce Ducheneau. It's French, D-E-A-Z-X-U-C, I don't know who's actually playing with some friends of mine in San Francisco now. He's a Native American guy who lived in South Dakota on a reservation. Bob actually stayed at his house on tour. And he had sold his horse to move to San Francisco and be a rock drummer. Wow. He played drums. He's a good drummer, but he's not Tony. He played all the notes in the right place, but he's not Tony. And that's the version of Bob that Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl came to see. And I remember Dave was up front and knew all the words in Seattle at the off-ramp. But afterwards, he came up to me and it's like, hey, Michael, where's Tony? You know, like he came because he wanted to see Bob with Tony. We did one tour with the four of us, me, Jay, Tony, and Bruce. I don't know. It was just anticlimactic and we broke up. And then I played in a couple bands that never went anywhere. No one in that band has ever been in a band that was as good or popular as that band. Definitely not as good. The best thing that Doug has done since then, he's done something amazing, but it's a cover album. You know that album? Um, he did a he he and a woman singer did a cover of the complete Brian Eno album, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. Oh no, I didn't like, know about that. Like one. the record opens with a answering machine message of Brian Eno saying, Douglas, I received the tape you sent and I love it. You've brought great life into these these cold songs I wrote so long ago. <laughs> but other than that, he plays in cover bands with his friends at the bar he works at. And Jay is a musician. Jay will always play music. When he was in France, he was teaching guitar to the kid next door, giving him guitar lessons. He has to play every day. We'd stay at someone's house and I'd wake up after him and he'd be cooking breakfast and then in between cooking, running over and playing their piano. He always has to be playing music. I thought I was done with music, but now that computer technology has enabled me to play everything, I'm loving playing music and I'm loving what I'm doing. And Biptunia is not huge popular, but Biptunia has had far more people listen to it than Bomb, which is kind of cool. Really? Yeah. Because of the internet. I mean, yeah, man. 
Uh, well, you had the link on your site, but I, I don't think it was there f- before. The, you guys are on Spotify now, or Bomb is. Two records are. The Warner Brothers yeah. record is, and uh, there's a best of album that is, that's called uh, Lucy in the Sky with Desi, which is some, yeah. it's some songs from Hits of Acid, but they're not... They're definitely not nearly as well mastered. And then it's some songs from Happy All the Time. It's something that came out only in the UK on vinyl and cassette maybe and maybe CD. I don't know. Our Warner Brothers record never came out on vinyl. It was was CD only. Kristen Pfaff. I don't know who that is. She played in the band Janitor Joe, which is a great band if you've never listened to them. And she was recruited to play bass for Hole for the Live Through This album. And she unfortunately died in '94, uh, I believe, of a heroin overdose. But um, And she is from Buffalo. Uh, so did you know her or anyone else in Hole? I knew the old drummer in Hole. I had sex with her. What's her name? Played on Pretty, Petty, Pretty on the Inside? No. no. Petty. Sh- you should know. I should know. You had sex with her. You should be able to know. I should know. And she was she was memorable. Her <laughs> name was Carolyn Rue. You know, it's not like, oh, I fucked so many chicks, I can't remember her name. She was actually like, we had a date for a long weekend. It was great. I loved it. But I just, I know so many people, I can't remember their names. But Carolyn Rue, yeah. She is actually the other person that Courtney Love stole her whole kinder whore dressing style from with her and mud women well i think she stole this style courtney stole it from carolyn or was influenced by carolyn that's what i heard and that's what other people said and then mud women i think kind of influenced the vibe you know i think i think courtney love may have played in that no she played in faith no more for a minute you know i actually had a friend in san francisco a friend who was roommates with courtney love for a while and he said, uh, yeah, I lived with her. It made me want to blow my brains out, which is <laughs> fucking dark. I don't, I don't like making jokes about that. But the joke I will make is that every time I hear Yoko Ono, I think maybe John Lennon killed himself. <laughs> She's fucking horrible. I have a theory I will put forth here that's never been put forth, which is that I think she was a CIA plant because... John Lennon met her and went from playing in the fucking Beatles, like the biggest band in the world ever, till Nirvana, really. And bigger than Nirvana, because yeah. they're around longer and put out more music, and they're, they're still played more. Like, I don't think you hear Nirvana probably in elevators, but you still hear the Beatles in elevators. Yeah. He was anti-war, which the CIA hated, and Nixon hated him. John Lennon was near the top of Nixon's enemies list, which was a real thing he had. Really? But I think, yeah, I think they had something on... Yoko Ono and made her go get with John Lennon to discredit him because he went from people followed what he did like what he said people did because he was in the Beatles and then he left the Beatles and started playing rhythm guitar behind Yoko Ono who is really is like the first I can't sing but I'll sing anyway singer and really the the worst the first and the worst a lot of punk bands are people that can't sing but I can listen to him I heard Yoko playing on some late night show backed up by the Flaming Lips, who I really like, and yeah, Bob toured with them for a month, and Yoko Ono, who is, it was horrible, man. I It kind of reminded me of that scene in Repo Man where Otto sees the Circle Jerks playing in a lounge band, and he goes, I used to like these guys. That's how I kind of felt the other day when I saw the Flaming Lips backing Yoko Ono. I used to like these guys. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, Hole, what was your next question? Uh, I, oh, the whole album, the album by Hole 
live through this, which I do think Kurt wrote part of and was not credited. Um, I suspect. I'm not going to weigh in on that she had him killed. I don't know. So My guess is the same as is discussion. as in any anybody who didn't know those people. I never met Kurt. I never met Courtney. Like 9-11, like I don't really think it was an inside job, but I think things America did forced it to happen. I don't think she probably right. killed him or had him killed, but I think living with her made him, I don't know. I don't fucking know, man. I know that he did hate being a rock star, which is kind of weird. Yeah, my impression from everything I've read is that he really struggled with being famous. Yeah. He didn't, I, I mean, talked to really Dale. Didn't... I talked to Dale from the Melvins who did know him and did play with him. And knew him forever. Talked to him at a Flipper show in San Francisco. Right before I left, Flipper, they'd been broken up for a while. They got back together with the original members that were still alive. You know, I was at Bruce Luce's wake. That's where I, I talked to Helios Creed there. And Jay's band, Housecoat Project, played, which was Mary St. Mary's, the singer. The wife of, at the time, of Bruce in Flipper. Wait, Bruce? Who's wake, did I say? The other guy. The guy that died. Will Shatter. Right, Will Shatter's wake. Bruce is still alive and hates me, and has called me a glad ass. <laughs> called me a glad handing ass kisser. <laughs> Gillis Creed played. Housecoat Project played, and some guy played acoustic guitar. And I wasn't really paying attention. I was talking to Helios Creed in the kitchen at this club at the on Broadway. I think it's called the one that's upstairs from the Mab. And I found out later that that guy playing acoustic guitar in the other room that I was ignoring was Leonard Cohen. I really fucking wish I'd known that. I didn't. Oh, wow. I didn't know who he was at the time, but he was friends with Will. Yeah, and he played to like you know 250 people in a small, intimate setting, solo acoustic. I love Leonard Cohen. I later came to love him, but I didn't know his music then. Wow. And Bomb covered uh, Suzanne too, which was Tony's oh, idea. Okay. Tony had good ideas. I got to say that. I think without Tony, Bomb would have been a really different band. I think the artwork would have been different, and I think it would have been. I think it would have been a little more hippie. Can't oh, without a, a doubt. I can't think of a band it would have been like. But yeah, I mean, I would never discount his input in Bomb. I just discount his, having to deal with him as a person. His style. I mean, he uses the toms so much more than your. Well, you know, he did that because he, would, he played in punk band he was he was trying to do double bass but couldn't afford a second bass drum so he did it with the bass drum and the hi-hat and invented a style we called it boogadigga because his drums were like boogadigga 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 that was he, <laughs> the name he came up with for it that was the name our first record hits of uh to elvis and hell was put out on our own label which we called boogadigga records ah uh, so that's where that comes yeah from. you know and i think uh, he influenced cool. a lot of people i've heard other drummers play like that now i think the guy that band, Queens I, of the Stone Age? Yeah, Queens of the Stone Age had drums, Josh. I guess. Um, I don't know, but some of their drums sound like Bomb to me, and I hear stuff here and there that sounds like Bomb. Like, there's this metal band called Mastodon. I think some of their drums do Oh, that. Yeah. yeah. I've seen them play a couple They're times. They're great. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I have to say the first time I saw them that the drummer was the only one that could sing on key yeah they're a bunch of old, they're a bunch of old stoners but there's no band that really sounds like bomb i mean there's like a million bands that sound like black flag i mean a lot of bands that sound like flipper but you couldn't it'd be hard to really sound like bomb i think and it wasn't popular enough that anyone ever did it but it certainly i think influenced people i think it might have influenced jane's addiction i've heard people say that our first record came out around the time theirs did i know that dave navarro had listened to bomb because at a bomb show we gave away a tattoo we had a raffle 
And of course, we rigged the raffle so a pretty girl got it. I mean, it wasn't a particular pretty girl, but like we knew some of the people that we looked around. We were like, yeah, she should win it. She doesn't know that. This will be the first time she hears that. But yeah, this woman, Bernadette, won it. And she got the word bomb tattooed on the back of her neck and we paid for it. I mean, I would assume Dave Nirvana has, Dave Nirvana, Dave Navarro has seen the back of his girlfriend's neck at some point or his old girlfriend at the time. So he's probably heard. I don't want to claim any influence. I just know that we had our place, which was a small but important place in the rock world. I think someone yeah, asked definitely. about like what was what was our relation to the scene. It's like uh, strained, you know. Our relation was strained because I don't really know what the scene was because we played a lot of hardcore shows and we were the odd band out. But people that liked hardcore kind of liked us too a lot. And probably I think most people that listen to hardcore all the time would kind of get sick of hardcore and like something that's hardcore adjacent, but not hardcore. Right. So I don't know. We had our own scene. I guess yeah, I mean, you guys definitely had a unique, distinctive sound. And then to me, and I've said this numerous times, I think one of the highest achievements that a person can make or a band can make in music is to get a sound that is unmistakably distinctive. You hear yeah. the Jesus Lizard or you hear, say, Shellac also. Like, you know who that is immediately. Yep. And yep. then Bomb is right there, you know. Yep. And nobody else sounds like you guys. Thank and, you. Um, Next question. And so, Ted, that did your artwork. Uh, Ted asks, what were your drugs of choice? And uh, I sort of answered that, but heroin? it was like, well, I did China White once or one week. It was in New York. Tony and I always, the heroin we got was tar. It was Mexican tar. Right. One time we got China White in New York and we didn't have a syringe, so we snorted it. And you really didn't need a syringe. It was so strong. Yeah. We did it right. We played at CBGB's three times, and this was the last time we played there, and there was actually an audience there. Also, we were opening up for Richie Stotts' band called Stotts. Richie Stotts was the guitar player in the Plasmatics, the guy with the mohawk. So, like, Joey Ramone was there because he's friends. I don't know if he saw us, but he was in the crowd. And it was packed. It was sold out even when we played first. You could buy heroin in front of cbgb's and he bought some and he and i snorted some and he threw up while he was playing we opened with the song vagrant vampires which you know has a really fast boogadigga boogadigga beat it's incessant yeah. for most of the song tony did one of the most punk rock things i've ever seen in my life which was threw up from heroin on the stage of cbgb's without missing a fucking beat wow he just, he just like <laughs> was playing that boogadigga beat he leaned over i saw him do it he leaned over threw up on the stage and kept playing and smiled at me and i smiled at him it was pretty fucking funny that's pretty awesome <laughs> you know it's you, awesome one doesn't it's want awesome. to get sick from heroin but yeah the fact oh, that getting he sick from that. heroin is like burping after you drink a beer you don't care it <laughs> <laughs> um, doesn't really answer it i did not like pot i've never liked pot i smoked pot when i was 11 and as soon as I discovered alcohol, I never really smoked pot again. I mean, I smoked pot when I was kicking heroin because it took the edge off, but I never smoked it because I liked it. I really didn't like Jay and Doug love pot. We'd get to a town, we'd load in our equipment, and Jay would be asking people in the bar, like, where's the pot? Where's the pot? Tony and I didn't do heroin on tour much. We would generally kick. You know, that's how I found out I was addicted. I was doing heroin like every third day for like eight months. And we went on tour and like the fourth day on tour on the first tour, 
you know, that one where things were falling apart from day one. I got a really bad flu. I got a horrible flu. Tour was like 10 days. And I just I called my girlfriend. I'm like, I have the worst flu, man. Hey, can you beat me at the airport with a loaded syringe of heroin? And she's like, yeah. And, you know, we met, we grabbed my bags, we jumped in her car and I shot up. And all of a sudden my flu went away. Yeah. yeah and, and, then about, and then about four days later, my flu came back and I put two and two, two together. I was like, oh, that's oh. Not, a, it's not a flu. Yeah. I don't think either Tony or I were ever hooked on tour. I think we generally kicked, you know, I kicked a lot. I mean, you know how it is. You get, there actually used to be a bodega in San Francisco that sold Valium. It was kind of weird. It was like a Mexican bodega that sold generic Valium that was smuggled up with the lettuce from Mexico. Yeah. And they were cheap. All the junkies knew about it. And whenever you wanted to kick, you just go down to, was it like 22nd Street or something on Mission and you'd say the keyword and whatever it was and they'd sell you some cheap and you know we'd get a handful of those and it would take the edge off kicking one other time I kicked on tour but my addiction was never that fucking bad until the end after Bomb broke up then it was like a gram a day which isn't still the worst habit in the world but it's so bad that if you don't have a shot when you wake up you're gonna have a bad day I would always save a little bit too in this range just so I'd have like three dollars worth in a syringe to wake up in the morning so i could go out and hunt for money and drugs yeah so like i said the other guys were doing acid but wouldn't give me any because i was too weird think about that i was too weird for the guys in bomb to give me acid that's how weird i was but uh (laughs) you know we all we all drank we all drank even when you don't get paid you're in a bar they give you beer yeah yeah there was a lot of speed running around but none of us were really speed freaks you know, they had speed so they could do a little bump and stay up all night and drive when the acid ran out, which is, I still can't believe I was in a van with people driving cross country who were on acid and didn't know it until later. I remember finding out I was asleep. I don't know where we were driving from, but I woke up. It was in springtime in Tennessee and I woke up. We were going through this back road and it was fucking beautiful. It was green everywhere. And I heard the other three guys in the front who were awake going like, dude, whoa, look at that. Oh, that's so pretty. Like overreacting to it, even though it was beautiful. And they didn't know I was up. And then somebody was like, give me another one. And I saw them open up some pieces of paper and a bunch of pieces of paper that I don't know what was on those pieces of paper, but let's say I saw some paper. And I asked them for some. And they're like, no, you're too weird. Go to sleep. I was too weird. I I was the little brother. You're too weird for our asses. Tony's like a week older than me, but he still treated me like a little brother and not in a good way. And Jay treated me like a little brother. But, you know, honestly, those two had lived in cities their whole life and I hadn't. And I was not very worldly. So I was like a little brother in that sense. All right. Next question. I know a bit about this, but Tad did ask, uh, what kind of music gear did you guys use? What kind of gear? You know, we're never really someone who'd be like... Let me tell you about our gear. We used what we had, which was, I used a Fender Precision Bass the whole time. I mean, it was it was an off-the-shelf, made-in-America Fender Precision, nothing fancy about it. It wasn't 1968. It was like 1980 or something. You know, it worked well. I pretty much used that the whole time. When we got signed to Warner Brothers, I bought three other basses, including one that was a 64 Precision I bought because it's the same year as me, and I bought... Another bass oh, cool. that was blue because it matched my eyes, but those all ended up in my arm soon after the band broke up. Yeah, it happens. So I used a Fender Precision bass and an Ampeg SVT, which is like the best fucking sound in the world. And to record it, I would split it and put half of it direct through a Countryman DI and then just close mic the SVT cabinet for the rest of it. It's a great sound. People should do it. I got to ask Chris 
or Jack what they did for Chris, because I'm guessing they did the same thing for Chris because, you know, and it was not influenced by me. It was just like, I think that's what good punk rock engineers did back then. And like someone, I had an SVT anyway, but someone did that like the first time I was in a studio and I'm like, that's the way I'm always going to record bass. And I still do. So Jay used a Gibson L6S. It's letter L and then six and then letter S which Jay joked like it was Spanish, like El Success. It is the guitar of success. It's kind of it's kind <laughs> of like success. a it's kind of like a low end Les Paul. It's kind of shaped like a Les Paul, but it's not as curved on the front. And, oh, okay. and I think it's got one pickup or maybe two non humbucker pickups, or maybe he put humbucker. But he used that guitar through the whole thing, and he still plays in that with that guitar. He used a bunch of effects. One effect pedal he had was an orange fuzz box not a distortion but a fuzz box that his dad bought from pink floyd that he no that he uses on hits of acid and it was later stolen by guar yeah it was just really it was huge it was orange and it was big and ugly and had no marking on it and it had like one button and one knob and his dad knew pink floyd and bought it from them when they sold a bunch of stuff to friends of theirs wow. And somebody from Guar stole it? Well, yeah. Well, what happened was we played with Guar a few times, and one time Jay smoked a bunch of pot and forgot to pack his... He had like a... This is kind of funny. He kept all his effects in like an old leather doctor bag, like something that the doctor would carry his morphine in in the 1800s. He had one of those that he <laughs> carried his effects and his cables in, and he lost that on tour. We called up Guar, and they're like, yeah, we have it. And we gave him our FedEx number, and they FedExed it to like two cities ahead of where we were so we knew we'd get it but it was missing that fuzz box and we asked him about it like i don't didn't see any fuzz box i don't know oh man so what a bummer. maybe they didn't steal it maybe jay forgot to pack it in there but i think but it's gone but i jay liked to tell people that that was from pink floyd so maybe someone thought that was too cool to return i don't know but i have three stitches in my forehead where dave brocky r.i.p from guar hit me in the head with a bass guitar when he was playing in the band Death Piggy, when they played, they came up from Richmond to Charlottesville and played at this gay bar that we played at called Muldowney's Pub, which was on Water Street, two blocks from where that woman got hit by the car and killed, which I still think was an accident, oh. but that's a whole other story. Because later, some Antifa bragged that they were trying to break that guy's windows and there were, he was just peddling it to get away from people that are trying to kill him but that's not what you'll read on cnn and they seem to think they know everything so so yeah it was on that same like two blocks from that spot uh that's where we played it was a gay bar that would let us that would let punk bands play in virginia my band beef people played with death piggy which is what basically guar was a joke that death piggy did in the middle of their set where they'd put on costumes and pretend to be this caveman band from antarctica but then the guitar player from Death Piggy stabbed somebody and went to prison. That's punk rock. So did Sammy from uh, Fang. He stabbed his girlfriend. I think stabbed, maybe choked, but killed his girlfriend and then like went on the run and was was on America's Most Wanted. There's an America's Most Wanted on YouTube. You can see about murder, oh, may really? murder, mayhem, and punk rock. But Sam's fine. He's a good guy. I still talk to him. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've talked with there's him. People that won't, him there's sure. people that won't talk to me because I'm friends with Sam. Like this guy, Little Mike, he used to help bomb out a lot. Good guy back in the day. Yeah. He's, oh, I think he may have done some, uh, uploaded some live footage. There's Little Mike, San Francisco. Yeah. On. He has so much footage that he's still rolling out from back then. Every once in a while, he'll put one up. Oh, really? Yeah. But I think some of it was shot on like a Pixel Vision cheap. Some of it was shot on a good analog 
high eight analog camera, but some of it was shot in one of those like cheap Fisher Price things that used a cassette tape as the medium, and they looked horrible and sounded horrible, but yeah, it's still cool. Yeah, Sandy stabbed people stabbed. So guitar player in Death Piggy stabbed somebody, went to prison, and instead of waiting for him to get out of prison, they just started doing the Guar thing because it was more popular than the band it spun out of. You know, a lot of bands were like that. Like the Chili Peppers were a joke band that spun off of Fear and a couple other bands. Really? Yeah. I didn't, didn't know that. Flea, yeah, Flea played in Fear. I mean, it huh. wasn't directly off of Fear, but it was a joke band from Flea and Fear and a couple other people. Like their first gig, they had one song and it was a jam and Anthony just made up words and people liked it. So they did it again and it ended up more popular than all the bands by far than all the bands. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd say uh, Chili Peppers, they've done pretty, pretty I like well them. I like them. They're a good band. Absolutely. So that fuzz box that Jay had that got stolen by Guar, the Pink Floyd one. That thing had a short in it, and it occasionally messed up. That's why on the Hits of Acid recording of I Loved You Then I Died, the first chord of it kind of goes, it's like, it gets better. I actually asked Jack and Dino to overdub that and play guitar and fix that, but he didn't get around to it. I told him I'd pay him 20 bucks for that, which is punk rock union rate. We left it as is, and that's Pink Floyd's Fuzzbox dying on the beginning, first note or two of I Loved You Then I Died. So a couple things I want to clear up, if I didn't. There's a new sequence on this album. I rearranged the song order a bit, based it on an old bomb set list, which we worked really hard on the set list. And the set lists didn't have the constraint of a vinyl album where both sides have to be roughly the same length, which was compounded by the fact that our album was 46 and a half minutes, which is way long. So we were kind of stuck with a very limited number of possible orders for the, the album, but it didn't flow as well as some of our set lists. So I used an old set list for that. I also deleted on the album, there's one part at the beginning of Spoked Feet, the very first song on the album where I go, I am so, and then it goes, wacka, 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 I love you. So that was me doing something that I would do live, which was I would start singing, I am so beautiful to me, can't you see? And at some point, Tony would interrupt me and start that song, but I didn't want to have the copyright problem, so I only sang the first three notes of it on the album. But opening the album, it just sounds like a mistake, so I just cut that out. What else did we do? Oh, so... I joked earlier about not paying Tony. I'm going to pay Tony on this if it makes any money. I doubt it'll make enough money to make profit and pay back what I spent on it because I spent a good bit paying Jack to master this and I paid for FedEx from Tom to get the tapes from Tom to Jack and then Jack back to me. And I paid the artist. You know, nobody buys physical albums anymore. I'm not going to make a physical product of this probably. I did make some t-shirts, but if it sells enough to pay me back for all that. I will split three ways, whatever's after that, with Jay and Tony and I. Uh, not give Doug any. He didn't play on this album. And there's nothing in writing that says he should. And there's morally, there's nothing that says he should. But yeah, Tony and Jay will get paid on this. I'm not going to talk to Tony, but I would give Tony and Jay's share to Jay and Jay could pay Tony. And he would do it. He's an honest guy. So yeah, I'm an honest guy too. I just don't like dealing with people. And I also don't like having to send out monthly checks for 23 cents. So I probably pay them once a year if it makes any money. 
you know, maybe if it makes some right away, I'll pay them some right away and then go to once a year because it's not going to make any money. It's a bomb album. Right. <laughs> There's a combo question for you, sir. Who is the primary songwriter? That's a question from Ted. Wait, kind of what the general creative process was in general for you guys? Right. Is it more that's, improv? That's easy to answer. Well, different eras. So the primary lyricists were always Tony and I. I don't think there are many or any lyrics in the band written by Jay or Doug. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. And Doug wrote some music with Tony, like where they'd sit down at Tony's house and just write and then bring a complete song to the band. I know that song, Goodbye Baby, was written like that, but Tony wrote the lyrics. Oh, yeah. Tony can't write a melody, but Tony can kind of monotone, hum a melody to where a good singer can take it and turn it into a melody. I'd say the lyrics total were about 50-50. The music on Hits of Acid is mostly me and Jay. I mean, Tony wrote some drum beats that we started playing to, and that's how the song started. But I don't know if that would technically be songwriting in the sense of there were sheet music. I don't think his name would be. And some songs we wrote all the lyrics ourselves. Like I wrote all the lyrics or Tony wrote all the lyrics or some of them we collaborated like Talking to God Upon a Mountain, that song. What's that called? Love, Fed, Hate, I think. That song we wrote the lyrics together. I remember we wrote the oh, lyrics yeah. together on Easter at the house of somebody from Mud Women. Uh, so basically, uh, Tony and I wrote the lyrics, and we all wrote together. Uh, we wrote this music sometimes together, sometimes separately. Like I would bring a complete song in and say, "Here's a song," or Tony and or Doug and Tony would bring a complete song in, and we just kind of played our parts around it. The first album, and actually a lot of a lot of hits of acid, we wrote together. So just everybody throwing their part in. Yeah, I mean we wrote we wrote in the same room is what I'm saying. Like it wasn't a lot of it was not somebody bringing in a complete song. A lot of it was whether or not Tony was really in the writing process. And sometimes he really had an idea. He did some writing. Like I would say on Bigger Than Fun, he had the whole thing mapped out in his head. The bass is just two notes and he wrote that and I just played that. I didn't make it fancy. That was one thing that was really good about Bomb was nobody had a, a need to show off. Everyone just served the song. We never even talked about it. That was just from the beginning. We're just going to make the best records we can and do the best shows we can. And like there really, there really aren't guitar solos in the songs. There's places where there's melodic single note guitar, but it was generally worked out ahead of time and played pretty much the same way each time. Yeah, I would agree. It's not, yeah, no conventional solo, but... I mean, I mean there might be one song with Doug that has, I can't remember, but what's next? My favorite song uh, definitely is Made to Fire. How was that one written? And then what are your favorite songs? Made to Fire, Tony wrote all the lyrics. I believe I wrote the vocal melody. I think Doug wrote the bass part. That's on the Warner Brothers record, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Doug wrote a lot of it. Doug and Jay, probably wrote that probably in the same room together. I know that sometimes there, was, there were conversations about little things, like in the studio, middle of Vagrant Vampires, the music stops and it goes, I won't hurt you much and then it starts back into the song it's kind of a real powerful moment because of the stop and then the start that song's on the first record Elvis in hell but it doesn't say much it just says i won't hurt you and by the time we did the second record we were playing faster because that song was hard to play but we'd gotten good at playing it faster and played it faster and we recorded it without 
vocals and then I would dub the vocals. I mean, I was kind of screaming along and I might've had a mic, but like I was saving my voice. Like you can tell, like just talking now for two hours, I'm losing my voice a little bit. So, you know, my voice was more, it didn't do it that quickly back then. I didn't scream a lot while we were laying down tracks of the three songs. We'd pause too long there for what the speed of the song ended up for the talking over it. So when we were recording that part, Jay goes, I won't hurt you. And there's a big space and we stopped. And, you know, I think someone said, at all? No, we're like, no. Like that was written in the studio, the much. And I don't remember if it was me or Tony, but one of us said much, which was the most fucking bomb thing in the world to say. I won't hurt you much. Never used pickup lines, but often one of the first things I'd say to a girl I liked was, I'm going to hurt you and break your heart, but it'll be worth it, which is kind of very much like, I won't hurt you much. Did that pickup line really work? Yeah. Yeah. And Hmm. actually one of them, I remember one of them was so distraught when I stopped sleeping with her that she moved back to Texas and she told me, she said, I wish you'd lied to me and told me that you'd always love me because then I could hate you. It's hard to hate you because you told me I'd hate you. That's actually kind of uh, sweet. Sad. Sweet. I mean, sweet sweet. and sad. I know. know, Well, that's the bomb answer is, well, that's sweet. But yeah. Oh, that's kind of masochistic for her to say that, but I don't know. I don't know. Depends on uh, who knows. Week. All right. So, so we're re- what we're doing right now is reconstructing the part where we ran out of batteries and uh, yeah, yeah. And, and lost about. It was only like you know one time I interviewed Henry Rollins for my book, Thirty Dollar Music School, and went over to his office to do it. He was the most pro person at getting interviewed I'd ever seen. I had one of those little dictaphone tape players, you know, with the little tapes in them. I was interviewing him and then typing it. I didn't worry about audio quality of what I was recording of him. I just needed it to transcribe. I had it and I was handing it back and forth between us. And at one point I handed it to him and he never handed it back to me. And at one point we heard the tape end. He kept talking. He didn't look at the tape recorder, but he pressed the right button, ejected it, flipped the tape, put it back in and started recording it without looking at it. I was kind of impressed wow yeah (laughs) like that guy's done a few interviews in his life yeah to even know that brand of tape recorder yeah that that make and model probably that's quite impressive yeah he seems like a pretty badass dude in a variety of ways yeah he's an inveterate liberal which i don't really like and i think that i don't want to go into that i don't want to get political on this at all so put it this way i like black flag and I like his spoken word stuff. It's funny and it's poignant. That's about it. What's the next question? So when you guys did shows and or were on tour, like some of the other bands, who were your favorites to play with and any lasting friendships? You know, I think come um, out of that? I was going to say we answered that, but we answered that without the tape rolling. So right. <laughs> Tony stayed in touch with bands and Jay stayed in touch with bands more than I did. I was... You could say I was selfish, but it's more like I was single-minded about the band. And, you know, I guess one has to realize that part of promoting a band is being friends with people. But I just didn't have time, man. I was too busy, in this order, playing music, having sex with women and doing drugs, and then drinking on my off nights, probably. So I didn't really think that much about the bands we played with. I paid attention to our set. We played with a lot of forgettable bands that were no good, that just was whoever was opening for us. We opened for some bands that are known but didn't make an impression on me. Like I said earlier, Naked Ray Gun, played with them. I liked them. Played with them twice. I like them, and they're really good at what they do. They were like, you know, a lot of the bands, the punk bands that were popular back then, 
not surprisingly, like no one ever really talks about this either, is the bands that were popular are the bands that were really fucking good and toured a lot. Dead Kennedys were fucking great and unique and they toured a lot. Black Flag were good and they fucking toured a lot. There were a lot of other bands that were really good, but you never really heard them a lot. Uh, there's a band called Victim's Family. They were kind of similar to that band, the Rhythm Pigs. You know, they were kind of like a jazzy, hardcore band. I liked yeah. them a lot. We played several gigs with them. I liked the Melvins. We played several gigs with them. I liked a band called Coffin Break from Seattle. Tony became really good friends with them, but I was pretty good friends with them. There's a band from Bellingham, Washington called Loaf, like a loaf of bread. I love them. Yeah. They sounded like Bomb, and they said they were influenced by Bomb, but their singer was really different, and they were a lot of their stuff was slower and more spooky, but still driving. Like the guy tried to play like Tony on the drums. He That was his goal, and he came pretty close. That singer died in a house fire in Bellingham where somebody knocked over some candles and the house burned down. Around 10 people, and all of them got out except Chris, and he was on codeine cough syrup, and he was too fucked up to walk out of there, I guess, or wake up. So that oh, sucks. Man. Like I said, you know, a lot of people I know were, were harmed by drugs, and it wasn't necessarily drug overdose. That's definitely the biggest one right there. That's a then, fucking horrible way to die, too. At least he was on some painkillers, and I'm not kidding. But, you know. Yeah, I hope, I hope he didn't you know, wake up. I would much bar. rather be shot in the head than uh, die in a house fire. Oh, yeah, and that's not too. foreshadowing, people. All right, what's the next question? Silly way of putting it, but uh, do you want to give any shout-outs to um, lesser-known uh, bands of the San Francisco scene at the time, or just uh, in general? I are think there, I just did. It, <laughs> but yeah well, uh, i guess more broadly like are there any bands from bombs era or more recently that you that are not well known that you say people should listen i don't think so because my favorite san francisco bands were probably flipper dead kennedys and the grateful dead and they're all people have heard of those bands uh, yeah, so pretty well known. i didn't get into the dead until after bomb was it after bomb before Bomb. I don't remember. But I saw The Dead nine times and was really liked them a lot and still really like them a lot. I don't have a big collection of live tapes or anything, but our new 2020 car, it came with XM Radio as a free trial, and I didn't think we'd renew it, but we fucking renewed it. And every time I'm in it, I listen to the Grateful Dead channel. I like it. You know, there's probably some little-known San Francisco band that's going to be listening to this screaming at me like, you said you loved our band, Michael. <laughs> There's a band called Happy World that were a punk pop band before that was popular that I really liked a lot. A guy named Shane was a singer and his brother was in the band. And I remember Shane, here's a, here's a drug story. He rehearsed at the same building we rehearsed at. And I think they lived there. And one time he stole someone in his band's guitars to sell them and buy drugs. I think it was his brother and didn't want to get caught. So went out a skylight instead of through the front door where they'd see him, jumped off a second story roof, broke both his ankles and limped to the pawn shop using the guitars as crutches, using the cases as Jesus crutches. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's fucking hardcore. That's dedication to your art of shooting dope, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, yeah, and you can get there. You can get there. Um, I liked a band called Tragic Mulatto. They were really good. They, were on, they weren't unknown. They toured, and they were on Alternative Tentacles, Jello's label. One thing I saw in San Francisco that was pretty unique was I went to three days of the trial when Dead Kennedys sued Jello. That was crazy. 
That was like watching my parents get divorced. I mean, the dead Kennedy, dead Kennedys meant so much to me. I learned not to trust the government from Jello. Like I learned more, I learned probably more about how to view the world that still sticks with me today from Jello than I did from my dad. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't have a lot of respect for Jello anymore because he's a leftist and, oh, wait, let's not put it this way. He taught me to hate the government when he was hating Reagan. But then when there was a Democrat in office, he didn't hate the government as much anymore which I think is kind of disingenuous because they're all fucking skunks who want to steal your money and push you around. What is that saying? I'll say this. This is a pretty neutral saying about politics that sums up my view. I don't remember who said this, but every election is an advanced auction on stolen goods. It's not a bad quote. Yep. It's probably one of the um, libertarian guys from the 70s or 80s that, I don't know. I heard someone else say it. I can't remember if it was... Go on. So I guess... I guess you haven't been watching Jello's uh, "What Would Jello Do" series. I on watched. YouTube. Somebody sent me one, and my favorite part of it was his cat. His cat was in a lot of the scene, but his cat um, is in some of them. Yeah, yeah. his cat looks a lot <laughs> like my cat, and just I just I like cats. Anytime there's a cat being happy, I'll watch that instead of the person usually. But I'm a cat person too. I don't know. I think there's. I think it's smart to die young, is what I'll say about Jello. You know. Kurt Cobain never stuck around to get fat and do a bad podcast. I got fat, yeah. but I'm I don't turn the video camera on. <laughs> so I'm smarter than Jello. Did we already cover Skinyard? I like Skinyard a lot. That was Jack's band. Yeah, Jack's We band. played with them. Oh, there's a band everyone should go listen to. My new favorite band, I can't remember the name of. So first of all, Jack Endino was in a band after Skinyard called Endino's Earthworm, which is kind of funny because I say worms as a greeting a lot, like, yo, worms, instead of word, which I got from David Immergluck, who played in my band Slish, who later played in Cracker and Counting Sheep, I mean Counting Crows. So Jack's jam band, Jack has a band now that he records it live playing in front of like, I don't know, 10 friends or something. But it's a live recording, but fucking Jack and Dino is doing the live recording. Usually live recordings sound like shit, but Jack is recording it on multi-track and mixing it well. And the band is called Beyond Captain Orca. Beyond Captain Orca, O-R-C-A, like the whale. And it's yeah. on Bandcamp, Beyond Captain Orca. And it kind of sounds like the Grateful Dead jamming covered with punk rock energy. I think a lot of people would not like that, but I really like it. I listened to like six albums the other day and they have a lot of albums. And Jack said that some of the, al the albums say hi-fi on them and you can listen free on Bandcamp. But the Beyond Captain Orca songs that are really well recorded say hi-fi. Those are the ones that were, I think, done multi-track. And the rest, I think, were done two-track and not mixed. They were just mastered. So, yeah, check out Beyond Captain Orca. And also his band, he likes the Grateful Dead, too. Jack and I really bonded a lot. I mean, I can see why he'd want to not use our emails back and forth as partial show notes for something. But I kind of look at everything I do as art, and it's all great, and people will love it. I know that there are people who would read that and dig it, but I'm not going to put it out. That's another thing I found out was we both think that Blue Cheer invented grunge, and we both like the Grateful Dead a lot. <laughs> I'm right. going to have to go back and listen to Blue Cheer. Blue Cheer are great. Um, Blue Cheer I first got into because the Westfield, New York, the town I grew up in. Actually, I was staying with my dad in Mayville, New York, which is even smaller, and the library in that town only had two rock records. <laughs> <laughs> really? You know, at least the Westfield Library had some Rolling Stones and Beatles. Yeah, the, the Mayville Library when I was a kid, when I was like 11 or 12, when I was first smoking pot, they only had Blue Cheer, Vince Buss Eruptum is the name of the album. It's the one with 
their cover of Summertime Blues. It's fucking great. But the whole album's fucking great. You know, if somebody handed you five minutes from the middle of one of these songs where there's no one singing and told you it's a new Mud Honey album, you'd believe them. And it's from like 1967 <laughs> or something. And the other album was not even really a rock album. It was Switched on Bach by Wendy Williams. Wendy, Wendy O. Williams? No, that's the singer in Plasmatic. Plasmatics, yeah. Who is Switched on Bach? It's oh, Wendy Carlos, who is now... Walter Carlos or vice versa it was it was Walter Carlos and she's now Wendy Carlos she's probably the first famous person who wasn't famous for getting a sex change to get a sex change hmm. but now I don't like her now she sues people for things she shouldn't like she did this album that's like I mean it was kind of the, the album that made everyone want to get a Moog synthesizer it's like multi-tracked of her playing all the parts on different tracks on a monophonic Moog synthesizer and replicating Bach and just sounding amazing. It influenced everything. Like Rick Wakeman from Yes went out and got a Moog synthesizer after he heard this. But yeah, a friend of mine put out an album that was Brahms. It was kind of done in the same style, but it was the it was Brahms, not Bach. And Wendy Carlos had her lawyer, which is her girlfriend, her live-in lawyer, send my friend a cease and desist letter for something she had no claim on. Like she was acting like I invented playing classical music on synth and no one else can do it. Bach and Brahms are all in the public domain. Her recording yeah. of it is her copyright. Like you can't put out a digital copy of Switched on Bach and get away with it, but you can do those same songs. It's fucking weird. It's creepy. She also sued some independent artist who wrote a really kind of like cute song that wasn't, I don't think it was making fun of her. It was like a folky song. And the, it was a story of how Wendy got in a time machine and went back and married herself as Walter, which is kind of cute and really not making fun of her. Like it was done by a fan of hers and she sued him for slander successfully and got $10,000 out of this guy whose record probably made $200. Kind of fucked up. That is fucked up. Yeah, I'm but that was, that was a big influence on me and it made me want to get a synth and First time I played a synth was in a music store and I could not afford it, but I recorded it. I said, my dad might buy me one if I play this and record it and send him the tape. And I was, I did that, but my dad, of course, didn't because it was like, <laughs> I mean, the synthesizer was like $3,000 and that's like $12,000 now. It's like 1980, oh, yeah. Yeah, but I recorded it and put it into that project in college. Basically, I sampled it under a lie it wasn't really a lie though because i was going to try to send it to my dad but I, I was pretty sure he wouldn't buy it for me but i recorded a bunch of blips and bloops on a cassette player in the music store and put it into that project i did where i got the one a my last uh, semester first time i went to college that's how i got oh, yeah, synth yeah. on that album was just in a music store and then the next time i play, i always played a little piano just on my own i'd bang around on them and play three chords but i did this hardcore punk rock band called the beef people their guitarist got kicked out of their boarding school for having a girl in his room so i took his place and i didn't write songs with them but i played guitar on the album and that was recorded with don z and tara at inner ear studio if you've seen that documentary that Dave Grohl did about all the studios, not about the one studio, but he did another not, one about all the bunch of studios. So not Sound City, but... Yeah, oh, Sonic Highways. One is DC. And he goes, he talks about the DC scene, interviews people about the DC scene, goes to Inner Ear Studio, where he recorded with Scream back in the day and records a song with the Foo Fighters. And he does the same thing at some famous studio in Chicago and Nashville and LA and a few other places. It's a really cool documentary. The easiest money I ever made was 500 bucks for the company that made that licensed 20 seconds of film for me that I shot of, uh, the, the, we talked about him earlier, 
Steve Albini. Yeah, about Steve Albini talking about the only thing Steve Albini does besides record all the time is what he's known for mainly is talking shit about the music industry in a really entertaining and true way. And I had a oh little, yeah, I love uh, to listen yeah. to him. And I had a little. His, a little hey, I mean, he has brilliant criticism. Yeah, and I actually I didn't film it. I paid a, uh, someone in his city to go film him. It's for my movie DIY or Die: How to Survive as an Independent Artist, and it actually was done after the movie was done, so it's only on the DVD extras. But it's on YouTube. Somebody put it up there. But yeah, they saw that on YouTube and paid me $500 to use seconds of that. And it's just Steve Albini nice. saying like something about how people who run major labels have nothing to do with music and suck and don't deserve anything. You know, Steve Albini. Yeah, I, I love Steve Albini. You ever read his excellent essay called The Problem with Music? I think I have. I think it's Google been that. a little it's, while. It was for some fanzine that isn't even around anymore, but it's reprinted 50 places on the internet. It's good. Steve Albini, The Problem with Music. Okay, next question. Well, I think it ties into uh, my last question for you. Cool. Um, if I could send you back in a time machine. I wouldn't right go. Now, Oh, go on. Would you, but you knew everything that would happen with Bomb, the as wild of a ride as it was, would you do it all over again? Yeah, there's only one thing I'd do different, and that's not smoke cigarettes. Because, <laughs> seriously, because I've had a lot of fucking lung problems. I mean, I'm on oxygen at night when I sleep, and I was on- Are you really? Yeah, I quit smoking about seven years ago because it was just fucking killing me. I smoked 60 pack years. I figured it out. I smoked 30 years- and the first 10 years, I smoked about a pack a day. Second 10 years, I smoked about two packs a day. Third 10 years, I smoked about three packs a day. And then I quit and vaped for about two years. And that was a little better, but it was still just my lungs were given up. I mean, I ended up in the hospital. It was so bad. So now I'm on CPAP oh, wow. at night with oxygen and I have an oxygen tank and I don't use it all the time now. Like I thought I'd need it for this interview a little bit, but I didn't. It's like if I go shovel the walk, you know, I'll shovel half of it, come in, breathe some oxygen for five, 10 minutes and then go out and do it. Yeah, it really fucked me up. I mean, it's my health would be a lot better in a lot of ways. I used to try to work out and I'd start getting in shape. I mean, I really was in shape in bomb. There's pictures of me where I look like a fucking golden god. Since then, and even after getting off drugs, like I would go to the gym, I'd get really in shape. And then I'd get really sick. I'd get just some kind of respiratory problem for like a month and have to stop working out, start eating more, you know, just general not. I got sick like every four months for like two weeks to four weeks for like 10 or 15 years. Man. And it basically stopped when I moved to Wyoming around that time. It might have been because just living with my wife, I was eating better and just going to the doctor more and well, like I had health insurance from her work and was just taking care of myself better and was also off drugs, but I was still smoking for a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, I called it Dean syndrome. I don't know what it was. It was the same symptoms every time. It was like a flu without a fever. Best way to describe it. And it also, Man. the one really weird symptom of it is I could get it up, but I couldn't come when I was sick with this. I don't know why. It's weird. Yikes, that's, yeah. that's no fun. It's weird. But yeah, I, but mean, it, it, I don't get that anymore at all. You know, I've had pneumonia once in the past few years, and I had, I've had some weird infections and shit, but they had nothing to do with, with that thing that I used to get in my lungs all the time. So, Would you do it all over again? Would you relive the bomb yeah, experience? Yeah, I would, but I wouldn't smoke. I also would fucking stand up to Tony. That's the only thing I'd do different. 
And, you know, I finally learned to stand up to him. And the only way to really deal with standing up with that person is to not have any contact with him. And, you know, I wrote a book about not having contact with people. Let me plug a few of the things I've done since Bomb because... Yeah, you've done a lot of great Yeah, I have. And I'm not saying anything bad about Bomb, but I know people from bands back then that haven't done anything except the band they were in. I knew this guy that was in a band that was kind of like a Guns N' Roses type band. You know, like they wore leather pants and had long hair and fucked a lot of chicks and drank a lot of booze and shot a lot of dope. And like that guy is fat and trying to get into those same old leather pants and can't, but puts them on anyways and goes and plays the same club to like 30 people and plays the same songs that he wrote 35 years ago and hasn't done anything new since. That's the best thing that guy will ever do in his life. And there's people that have done shit like that. What have I done? I've made a bunch of movies. I've toured Europe with a movie. I've toured America with a movie. I did a movie that was narrated by Robert Downey Jr. I wrote the narration for him. Got flown to France to show it in the Deauville Film Festival. I showed it in Prague. I've booked a tour myself since Bomb broke up with another film, DIY or Die, How to Survive as an Independent Artist, and just took it around Europe and showed it and did a QA. and I've written a bunch of books. I made my living writing books for about 10 years, writing and also editing other people's books. Oh, really? So I got really good at proofreading. I'm a good proofreader. Good throwing it out there <laughs> yeah well it's good it, you know what they'll never hire me to do that again because uh the publishing industry is entirely extreme left-wing people and you don't even have to be conservative you just have to be libertarian and they hate you if you're not on our side you're like that seems to a lot of people that seems like something that's only happened since trump but i've seen that since back then <laughs> it's not new it's just really kind of reached ahead to where it's mainstream now let's see what else would i do different i don't know man I think I would just have more of a spine and uh, not smoke cigarettes. And I would be Superman if I hadn't done that. What else have I done? I've put out a book that sold about 130,000 copies called $30 Film School. Oh, uh, yeah. Put out a sequel wanna, to that. I want to get that. $30 Music School, $30 Writing School. Wrote a, I wrote a novel called Starving in the Company of Beautiful Women. It's basically bomb with all the names changed. That's a good read. That's on Kindle now. You can get it. It's, it was a limited edition paperback of a thousand copies that I had pressed before you could print shit on demand. Like I went to a print shop and paid a print shop to do it in the year 2000. I'm going to have to read it. I wrote a book called A User's Manual for the Human Experience, which half of it is how to get bad people out of your life for good and not let new bad people in. And half of it is about how to make a living working for yourself. I've not read all of it, but I've read certainly portions of it. It's, it's valuable. It's extremely valuable. Thank I mean, you. narcissistic individuals and uh, sociopaths, and I've dealt with some real ones, and they they will fuck you over yeah. and, and a difference not give between, a shit. I'm egotistical and was a lot more egotistical back in the way, but I just won't have contact with narcissists. I won't let them in my head. I won't. I mean, I'm talking about Tony a lot in this, but he has a lot to do with the topic of this. Yeah, like he's tried to contact me, you know, every year he tries to contact me and I just delete it. I don't read it. I won't read it. And that's really what you have to do with people that you really don't want fucking with your head who just don't seem to learn. You just don't let them in, man. I think that if everybody knew that, I think the world would be, I wouldn't say perfect, but it'd be a lot fucking better than it is because I mean, I have a family member that works in a law firm helping with people's divorces. And it's like the stuff she sees are just, it's fucking heartbreaking. And it's people fucking and marrying and having kids with people, two out of three at least, that they shouldn't be in the same room with. Yeah, I've dealt with some of the fallout of that at least. And it's, it is, it really is heartbreaking 
some individuals it's, it's truly terrifying in a, a psychological sense deal with someone you realize they genuinely have no empathy whatsoever yeah. they will ruin you and think nothing of it and yep. people like that really do exist so the only thing i do different is i'd stand up to people and not let them push me around and i would not smoke cigarettes cigarettes gave me a lot more health problems in the long run than heroin or alcohol cigarettes are fucked up i can't believe they're legal i mean i you know everything should be legal but if other things are illegal i can't believe that they're legal governments and how much they suck all right thanks that's all enjoy this new old bomb album it kicks ass bye